Rippy Writes with Brian Scott Rippy. Transcripts can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What's up? Hope everyone's doing well on a Wednesday. I'm Brian Scott Rippy. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Writes podcast. We got a good Wednesday show for you. Super talk, do it all, man. Michael Borky joins to talk some coaching carousel. We did a little bit of Ole Miss State off the top just because he's tasked with watching both programs every weekend, how they ended up, where they go from year two into year three, and then dove into a ton of coaching carousel stuff. The fit for Brian Kelly at LSU, what he did at Notre Dame, why Lincoln Riley went to USC, a lot of uh, a lot of that stuff got to some Billy Napier at the end and where this whole college football silly season is going to be in three, four years is the money just keeps growing and people keep leaving. I mean, how Brian Kelly left uh, a program that was one of six programs that still had a shot to win the national title this year. So a lot of that stuff, good, good conversation about a lot of topical things going on right now. But before we get to that, I wanted to remind you, the podcast brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, Glad you asked. They're the world's best gaming handicapping website. The inventors of the Skybox Matrix Interval, an advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the sports handicapping industry. Need to check these guys out there. The real deal. They're going to have a picks package to fit your price range. There's no one hotter than Skybox on the NFL right now. Came off a winning week in college last week. I'll, uh, I'll have some numbers from this past weekend by the Wednesday podcast, but you shouldn't wait to try these guys out. They're giving out free plays in college basketball every day. That is skyboxsportspicks.com slash free plays. You get a daily free play for the people every day, just courtesy of Skybox, because basketball is what they crush the most. It's by far their best uh, model. That is their words, not mine. Check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. Make some money for, uh, before the holiday season and uh, buy your Christmas present with some winners via Skybox. Use the promo code RIPPY. You get 20% off. Let them know we sent you. Podcast also brought to you by LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. Go see Greg if you're a subscriber. Rippy Wright subscriber, that's rippywrights.substack.com. You get a 16 ounce prime strip for 20 bucks and a $5 pack of sausage. That's a hell of a way to kickstart your grilling weekend. Got some good football on this coming weekend, uh, conference championship weekend. You need to go check out at least throw something on the grill and enjoy the action. They got all kinds of great seafood, sausages, crab stuff, mushrooms, all kinds of great stuff. You need to check them out. LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. Greg wants to make your grilling experience great. Oxford is so lucky to have LBs. It is delicious. I know most of you out there know exactly what I'm talking about at this point. Go see him again and uh, let this coming weekend be uh, something awesome on the grill. Check him out. LBs University Avenue across from Kroger. Finally, the podcast brought to you by Manscaped, as is all MPW digital podcasts are. Manscaped is the leader in men's grooming. They offer author precision tools for your jewels. They're here to make me time in the bathroom, your favorite time in the bathroom, and make sure you are nice and groomed and kempt down there. They're the industry leader in men's grooming, lawnmower 4.0 model. Got a nice little LED light on that thing, portable charger. Heard the 70s were a wild times. Manscaped is here to make sure that that is a bygone era. You need to check them out. Make sure everything's all neat and tidy down there. Join the over 2 million men who trust Manscaped. Use the promo code MPW to get 20% off any purchase at manscaped.com. All right, here is Michael Borky. All right, we now welcome on good friend of the show, Super Talks Do Everything Man. I got the title more concise this time. Michael Borky, Sports Talk Mississippi, three to six every, or I was about to say every Monday through Friday, Monday through Friday every week. We've got a lot to talk about. I always text, you're one of the first person I think of 
I was about to say this, and it's going to sound like an insult. You're the only person I think of when there's <laughs> a lot to talk about, but I don't know where to start. I was about to say you're the first person I text when I have nothing else to talk about, but that's not what I meant. There's a ton to get to. Silly season's around the corner, so I was like, what? we might as well hash it up. Uh, been about a month or so since we opened the pod. I think we had like a quarter season last last time you're uh, here. So we'll get to a bunch of different stuff. How are you, my friend? I'm doing well, man. I, uh, I just was following the ever-important Connerly Trophy. Yeah. which uh, Matt Corral deservedly won and uh, just really happy that the voting got extended uh, to, to make sure that the appropriate candidate won because, you know, without the Egg Bowl, I wouldn't have known who would have been the best college football player in the state. So I'm glad that got cleared up. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, <laughs> exactly, because, you know, <laughs> one game should carry more importance than all the others. Look, you could make an argument, I guess, like if, if that game had gone where Rodgers goes, you know, wasn't he like 36 to 39 against Kentucky? If he had another one of those like yeah. laser focused and corral through like three picks, then I think still think corral probably should have won it. But like I could hear the argument, you know, you get swayed later in the year. But I just feel like there are bigger fish to fry than to, to, to delay the voting of that. It's a cool award. Don't get me wrong. I don't mean to demean the award, but like. And- no, I'm glad that we do that here. I, we had somebody text in the show today that would say that said. The Connolly's kind of pathetic. Would you see Arkansas doing something like that? And well, they should if they don't. But Mississippi's kind of unique in where we have a bunch of college football teams here. I mean, the, the number of teams that got a nominee were Ole Miss State, Southern, Jackson State, Alcorn, Valley, Bellhaven, Millsaps, Delta State. I mean, it's not like it's just in between Ole Miss and State. Like there actually is something to it although those lower schools never win at least they get to send their best player up to jackson for a night to eat free food and you know hear a speech that he probably has already forgotten about but still there's more to it than just old miss and state guys i think it's a cool thing as well i I think you're dead on with that as well and like it helps that they have three major programs i know some people will bristle at that but look southern miss is fbs that's a major college football program when you look Top to bottom, yeah. NIA all the way up to Division One, you know, Southeastern Conference. That's a major football program. And then you're right, it goes beyond that. I mean, there's two D2 schools in the state because I believe Mississippi College is D2 now as well. Yeah, so, didn't even mention them. So yeah, they, exactly. Like, there too. And, like, it's kind of cool when you have one of those guys from the smaller schools that just puts up. Like, you know, every, like, third or fourth year you have some, like, this receiver's, you know, he has like 4,000 receiving yards. Like I would have liked to see how that happened. Like that kind of stuff's cool to me. 47 touchdown receptions at Delta state. Yeah. Yeah. This guy has three, six touchdown games on the year. Like he deserves some love. Like actually you probably do pal. I don't know who you are, but impressive year, but I think it's a cool thing too. And you know, the more, like the further we go on in time and into the future, like it, it, you add more history to it. And now it's kind of been around a while. I agree. But, uh, you know, making a stink of when the voting should have been seems uh, silly, which is partially why, well, I would say mostly why uh, what I wanted to discuss tonight, it is what some people term silly season. So I don't, there's a number of different places we could start with this. Let's start, let's, let's go back a little bit actually before that and kind of do a brief little, uh, egg bowl season and review thing um you know chase and i got into the game pretty in depth on friday did a uh, half silly season half old miss year and review thing with weldon on sunday as a lot of stuff was going on credit to weldon you know he grew up an lsu guy and worked at old miss and obviously now is out of the industry but he was he, he still was i wouldn't say like well connected in baton rouge but has a pretty good thumb on what's going on and we finally got to the bottom of him and he goes you know what i'm just gonna say it he goes 
I think there are guys right there, and it's all like when the dust settles, it's going to be Brian Kelly. And then 24 hours later, it was Brian Kelly. So I was like, props to Weldon there. But anyway, that was a tangent. Before we get to that, what did you just think of the conclu- the Egg Bowl and the conclusion of both these team seasons? I thought they both had really good years, to be honest. Uh, I know the Egg Bowl did not go the way that Mississippi State people wanted to, but I mean, you look at that team in September versus where they were in November. Like they were certainly a worthy opponent. Like I know Ole Miss had a chance to kind of make that sucker 31 to six and kind of get it out of hand, but they were a lot better football team than they were the first month, first month of the year. And that's kind of Leach's MO and they bring back everyone next year. So like year in like year encapsulated for both schools. I thought it was a huge positive Ole Miss, obviously positive. Oh yeah. I mean, if you'd have, uh, I put this on Twitter, if you would have told me in December, 2019, that in November of 2021, Lane Kiffin would have just finished a 10 and two season in which they probably should have been 11 and one. No kidding. They're going to go to an access bowl and Matt Corral is going to be a first round pick should be the first quarterback taken. Although I saw Dane Brugler had him the third quarterback taken behind Pickett and Howell and okay. I like Dane Brugler too. And you know, He's connected. He's really good. So maybe that does happen, but congrats to Corral because then you'll get on a better team if you fall like that. But either way, if you'd have told me in December of 2019 that this season was going to go down like this, I would have laughed. No way was Ole Miss football in December of 2019 prepared to go 10 and 2, should have probably been 11 and 1, if not for the injury bug, and going to an access bowl. I wouldn't have believed you. And it's, it's a remarkable coaching job. It also kind of shows you what. Uh, even just competent coaching can do when you have a quarterback as talented as Matt Corral, uh, what that can unlock. Uh, But it's the conclusion of what you were hoping Lane Kiffin would be when you hired him, right? Uh, You expected funny tweets. You expected big-time attention, some of it negative with the coaching search stuff. I mean, Lane Kiffin's name shows up in every freaking coaching search article, even though it has – he has a 0% chance at some of these jobs both ways, by the way, like he wouldn't take the job and the job wouldn't be offered to him. And yet he still makes it on the list. So you you were going to get big attention. You were going to get big offense. I didn't expect you to get big wins like this, this soon. So the egg bowl was an unsurprising end to a really surprising year. When you look back at what it was like when he was hired, it's just a remarkable coaching job. And you would think, that this opens his eyes a little bit to the idea that you can win at a high level at Ole Miss because yeah, it took a lot of things going right. It took Matt Corral being a special quarterback, but this is Ole Miss's third access bowl since 2014 when these began, it can be done. I didn't think it was going to be done this quickly, but that was after that game. And since then I thought I'm surprised by this, but now this should be something that happens regularly. Best case scenario all around from an Ole Miss standpoint, because you turned a, as Kiffin likes to do, but a generational arm talent into a complete quarterback prospect. And you made good on having, you know, arguably, I think the best quarterback in college football. Again, I don't watch Ohio State week in and week out. I did watch a decent bit of their Michigan State game and Stroud looked pretty damn good, but he's throwing to better receivers and was throwing on an awful Michigan State pass defense. But I think bang for your buck, Corral's the best quarterback in college football and credit to them for making good on it. And then the other part of it is, you know, when you're like, how if they got to 10 wins, how did they do it? Well, it was the same thing we all talked about in August. Well, the defense made a market, you know, a huge, huge jump forward and improvement. And you're not going to see that in the numbers 
which I think I learned a lesson this year with regard to the old Miss defense is I don't know where they finished in terms of uh, like total defense or whatever the conglomeration of all the stats are, but I would be surprised that it, I would be surprised if it is higher than like the mid eighties, because at one point when they were in that stretch where they were starting to figure it out and playing pretty good football, they were still like one Oh seven. And I saw it like one of our threads on our board. There's like, this is unacceptable. It's like, well, you watched them the last two weeks. I don't, I don't think they're the 107th best defense in college football. I think they're a little better than that. So I think I learned a lesson in that engaging defense by the numbers, because what your eyes told you the last five weeks of the year was this team generated a real pass rush. They were a lot better in the back end and Jake Springer and Chance Campbell made a difference both at the line of scrimmage. I know they do other things as well, but I thought that really helped in some run stopping responsibilities because Springer just plays a great instincts. Campbell gave them an edge or excuse me, plays with an edge. Campbell gave them just speed at that position that they hadn't had in a while. Point being, this was what we thought it would be, but I just didn't see it developing like this. And I think we were teased by the fact that they were so bad after the Arkansas game, they gave up 51 points or whatever. And then you get Springer back and they were a totally different defense. That's probably the biggest surprise in all this is they were the more physical team and their two biggest wins of the season. And I think I made this point in the newsletter. I may have done it on the podcast Sunday. So forgive me if I'm repeating myself, but they won that game without it handily, without a turnover um, in, in the egg bowl. And they were well positioned to win it before the two turnovers late in the fourth quarter against AM. Don't get me wrong. They needed both of them and the pick six sealed the win, but they were still kind of punishing AM defensively before they turned it over. It was just kind of a physical presence about them that you hadn't seen in some time from an Ole Miss defense. And at the end of the day, I think that's how this happened as great as Corral is. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it's been talked about on this podcast feed ad nauseum, but second half Ole Miss offense going into the Egg Bowl for the six weeks going into the Egg Bowl was, was awful. And yet they went five and one. They did that because they played great defense. And the thing is, they're going to lose some of these bodies, right? Like Sam Williams was, was obviously a major impact player and he's going to be playing on Sundays next year. But uh, the defensive line got better every week. I mean, you started getting contributions from your two Juco guys that you were hoping would have come on faster. They didn't, but by the end of the year, uh, Iton and Gordon were playing heavy minutes. KD Hill was doing a really good job on the inside, uh, keeping offensive linemen away from linebackers, allowing them to make plays. So Ole Miss's run defense was pretty good. And it they got a real the quarterback well. what it was. Yes, and Cedric Johnson, I mean – there's a guy that nobody talks about at all. And he had what six and a half sacks this season opposite of Sam Williams going against the left tackle that every team, I mean, going against the best offensive lineman most of the time all season. And he quietly had, I think it's six and a half sacks this year for Ole Miss. So it, it wasn't just that Campbell and Springer and Williams were great. They were, but other guys that whose names are weren't even, really familiar with going into the season made them a complete defense. They were a complete defense by the end of this season at every level. They were good. And that's the difference in the two road wins. They got that turned the tide of the season, them winning in Starkville and winning in Knoxville is because of the defense. And even at Auburn, like I think it's a good contrast to it because they sucked in the first half. They couldn't stop Auburn for you know, over the first 25 minutes of that game, they couldn't do anything. I think Auburn scored four touchdowns on their first five drives or something. And it was just too big of a hole to cl- for the offense to climb out of 
with all the injuries, right? If, if Ole Miss yeah. fully healthy, they're down 28, 17 and a half. And you told me that all, they allowed 30 in the second half at Auburn. I would say Ole Miss won that game 38, 31 or something of that sort, but mm-hmm. just the injuries that night were too much to overcome. So I think that was the difference between the eight and four and the 10 and two was being tough enough and good enough defensively to go win tough games like that. Because, you know, for Tennessee's lack of depth, they're kind of like Ole Miss. They're like in between year one and year two Ole Miss. Really explosive offense. Not a terrible defense, but no depth. And I, But, man, were they keyed up for that game. And you got their best shot. And I think the reason you're able to come out is defense. Before we get to the state or the coaching search, so just the state side of it, no, it's a bitter taste in their mouth. But that's got to be an encouraging sign because, man, there were times that last year we were like, is this going to work? Like at all, and then Several the first month this of the year, season, I thought that. yeah, exactly. The first month of the season is like, is this going to work at all? And the Rodgers seemed to figure out the system very well. He seemed to, at least in the second half of the year, commit enough to running the football to at least make you know some difference and kind of keep teams off balance in the red zone. I got to think with as many guys that are returning next year, I don't know if it's a huge win jump necessarily because I don't know their schedule. There's a lot more that goes into it, but the second half of the year has to be a gigantic positive for where state's going. I'm going to pull up their schedule right now, actually, uh, just for what it's worth. Uh, but, yeah, it, there, there's, there's positive and negative. First, uh, obviously, Will Rogers got better as the season went on, and he was able to have some success against SEC opponents. It's one thing for the Air Raid to light up Vanderbilt and Memphis, although they lost that game, and Louisiana Tech and whoever's in their non-conference. Uh, so next year, they will have Memphis again. Uh, they go to Tucson, Arizona. They have LSU in week three. They have Bowling Green in the non-conference. From the east, they get Georgia. God bless them. Uh, And and their permanent is is Kentucky. So, yeah, I'm with you. I I don't think the wins will change much. Uh, They should avoid a a bad loss like to Memphis that that they had this past season. But on one hand, Rodgers got better, and he got more comfortable throwing the football down the field some. Like behind the linebackers, underneath the safeties. That is a huge money window in the air raid at least from my amateur perspective, where you've got all these crossers. That's, they do so many crossing routes, and you've got different layers of these crossing routes. And last season and early this season, he would just throw underneath and just throw dump-offs, and that's all it would be. And, and all of their yards and completion percentages were just empty calories because it didn't get them anywhere. It had a high volume, or it had a high percentage, but not high volume. He started pushing the football down the field a little bit more, and that opened up the offense some. They ran it a lot on first downs with good success. I think in the Auburn and AM games, if I'm remembering correctly, they averaged like seven yards per carry on first down. Random stat, but they ran the football well on first down, which opened up the offense some more. So that really helped, and, and he got better, and they moved the football more. My concern, though, is offensive line. Because like you said, everybody's back. Rodgers still is limited with arm talent. Uh, he doesn't have the, the arm that Matt Corral has. He, he will not ever uh, be able to be as explosive throwing the football vertically as people around here will want him to be. He just does not have that kind of an arm. And I don't think at this point in your career, it, it magically just becomes that much better. At some point, your arm strength and your arm talent is what it is. Maybe I'm wrong but it feels like he's going to be limited in the vertical passing game for the duration of his Mississippi state career. Uh, maybe he can hit the gym. I don't know. I think I, you're I right on that part. I mean, it, it, there may be small things you can do, but generally what he is as a prospect at this point is what he is, because I think if there's an opportunity to get stronger and you see that arm strength greatly improve, and I'm far from a 
quarterback right, mechanics yeah. Savant, it would be between last year and this year, would it not? It, it, he's you would have already physically seen. bigger. You can tell that. Yeah, you. I think you would have already seen it. And it, it's, it's not like he has a noodle arm or anything, but it's not the strongest that you'll see in the SEC ever. So they're going to continue to be limited there. The accuracy was really on point. Uh, you know, there's weird rumors about receivers possibly leaving, but until that actually happens, we'll just go on the basis of everybody's back. Makai Polk was really good this year. Jaden Wally was underused, but he's really capable. Uh, everybody's back skill position, quarterback, running backs, every wide receiver uh, still has eligibility remaining and will be back presumably at state. The issue is three offensive linemen are gone, including a first-round pick, an Alabama transfer at right tackle, remember the one that Sam Williams just ate alive, and uh, an interior lineman as well. My concern is, will they replace that talent with comparable talent? Because you saw that what that looks no, like last year when they couldn't block. It's brutal. Right. Yeah. And so if Charles Cross is not replaced with a capable left tackle, what is the offense going to look like next year? I, State fans, and rightfully so, have been really hard on Lashley. He's been a false start machine. He's been a holding machine, and he's gotten beat a lot. But what do you do without him? When you lose offensive linemen, if you don't replace them with equally talented offensive linemen in that system, if they're not as good, you could possibly see a drop-off. So that's one area of concern. But I think they've got kind of a ceiling with this. And it's seven and five, eight and four. You know, they'll slip up and lose to somebody they shouldn't. This year was Mike Leach. This is what Mike Leach is. They slip up and lose to somebody they shouldn't, Memphis. And they'll go on the road and beat somebody they shouldn't, Texas A&M. This is what he's going to be forever. Good, solid teams that can beat you, but there's a ceiling, and they're already kind of close to it to me. And at its core, it's interesting because I think you're right with that. I agree. I, I, it's a very high floor, but I'm not sure what the ceiling is, and I'm curious to find that out. You know, I mean, you know, when he got to the end of a talent cycle or got a really good quarterback in there, and I'm not saying Rodgers is or is not that. I would actually at this point maybe lean is with another year in this if he continues to make improvement. Absolutely. You can get the 11 and one Texas tech year, or whatever they went under Minshew, but that's the PAC 12 and the big 12. That's the, it's a little different animal in the sec. And so I'm curious to see what that looks like. The offensive line thing's concerning to me, but what the weird part about it is, is they're still, if I'm not mistaken for the most part, still, I mean, look, Charles cross would play on any team on any planet in America. So like, don't confuse this for, for excusing or kind of caping for that and saying it won't be that big of a deal. But there, it is a different type of offensive lineman that's asked to do different things, and I still feel like they're in the midst of that transition. It helped that they had a really good left tackle this year and seemed to piece it together as well elsewhere. As they replace the three, I'm curious to see what that looks like. But the other piece of that is interesting to me is I was listening to uh, Pete DeWeese and Neil on the pregame show. Uh, I had a lot of time in the car as I was driving back to Mississippi for Thanksgiving on Wednesday night. And I hadn't listened to that show all year. Just, I don't know when I listen, like doing this still, even just part-time and I listen to podcasts, like they're very rarely old miss podcasts, mostly like NFL, NBA stuff. Not really the point, but I, it was the first time I was listening all year. Uh, one Pete Deweese is great breaking down football. He's, he's phenomenal. He makes me feel incredibly stupid. Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's <laughs> but smart at the same time because he doesn't just chuck a bunch of jargon at you yeah. to where it's like the point of like Greg McElroy. If I have to hear that guy say point of attack one more time, I might ram my head through a wall, but like he breaks it down to where it's easy to understand. And 
he was talking about the the air raid and it's it's so much of we do what we do it's the same thing he said it in much more articulate terms than this but it's we do this over and over and over again and we practice this over and over and over again to where when it's good it's almost like robotic like consistency and rhythm because and i noticed that at times on thursday night even though state's office didn't play very well i mean there were a couple of throws to the sidelines Rodgers threw it. The dude turned and the football was right there. It's like, that's what he's yeah. talking about. He knows exactly where they are. Sometimes he throws it for the break and knowing where he's going to go. But one of the analogies me and Weldon and I have used is like, it's like an avalanche. I and mean, I think this plays into the low floor or excuse me, high floor, low ceiling thing. When it's going, it's hard as hell to stop because it is what it is. And if you didn't know Ask how to Auburn. stop it to start the game, you're probably not adjusting on the fly unless, you know, you start sending, I mean, not even sending pressure because they'll crush you with that unless you start getting pressure without blitzing. And so I do think he, I mean, there'll be two opponents a year that maybe it's a coin flip or they're not supposed to be, that they'll trip them up because it turns into what kind of A&M was and surely what they did in the second half at Auburn. But then you kind of get the Memphis side of it to encapsulate this in an actual question, you watch more real Will Rogers than I did this year. The arm is probably a bit of a concern, not a huge one, but I thought the bigger one was is how how less accurate and less poised he seemed to be when he has to move laterally and around in a broken pocket. And he doesn't like to run. He certainly does not like to get hit when he's running. How big, like what's the biggest concern with him going forward and do you think it's that? Because that was the one thing where I was like, man, when they made this kid step sideways one way or another, it looked a hell of a lot different than when he was in rhythm. Yeah, and that's that's why protection is so important. I mean, it's it's always important, right? You you want to keep your quarterback clean, but especially him and especially in that system because you saw the difference in the Egg Bowl. If you've never watched Rodgers play until that one, you saw the pocket awareness, but not just awareness, the, the elusiveness within the pocket and the ability to immediately reset your feet and throw an accurate football. That is something he has not quite figured out yet. Luckily, that's that's something that you can teach and get better at. That's not like a natural behavior, but athleticism is not something you can really overcome. My dad used to tell me all the time, uh, sorry, you're never going to be fast. You can work as hard as you want. You're never going to be fast. You can work on form. Speed is speed. And you're born with it or you're not. And I think there's there's an element to that is is elusiveness and being shifty and and all that is something that you can improve on. Look at Tom Brady. He's excellent in the pocket. He's not a very fast guy. But when it comes to escaping and what you saw in the Egg Bowl, I think that's kind of where they're stuck. And so if they don't have great protection, you're not going to have situations like Auburn did with Bo Nix where you've got a guy that's slippery. I mean, he sees a tackle coming and he can duck underneath or spin out and still make plays. Matt Corral, obviously very, very good at that pre-injury and even after the injury, still quite good at feeling pressure and escaping that pressure. Rodgers is not that way. If he feels pressure, he's down. Or it completely disrupts his rhythm, which when he's in rhythm, like you said, he's hard to stop. He knows where, like you said, he knows where everybody is he is extremely accurate throwing the football. The timing is great. But if it's disrupted at all, right now, you beat him. You beat him every time. If it's disrupted at all, you beat him. 
And there's a lot more of that in the SEC. There's a lot more fierce pass rushers that can get pressure without blitzing because that's what Ole Miss was able to do. And, you know, going into the year, you would have thought there's not a shot in hell they could do that. But as you mentioned earlier, it was not only Williams, but Cedric Johnson, who's kid that Weldon is all over because that was someone he identified early in the process. That was kind of one of his kids in the recruiting deal. But they were a pretty formidable, good pass duo by the end of the year, and it worked. They abused Lashley, and Cedric Johnson was good on the other side. And I think you'll see that a lot more often in the SEC than you will – and you, I mean, look, when Leach it's a league of, of elite pass rushers, right? Like back then with Leach, it was, it was Texas and Oklahoma. I know Texas isn't what it is now, but that was Mac Brown, Texas. They had good dudes on defense. Now I mean, the entire sec West has this guys. And if, if, if you're playing a team in the West that doesn't, it, they're probably going to finish close to the bottom. So I'm curious to see what it turns out. Like, I don't, I don't necessarily, I'm not still down on it per se. I would actually love leaving this year. I was like, Oh, actually they kind of got something here. Um, and they do. That's true. I, I feel like I was overly it. negative, and I, I, I guess I shouldn't be, because they did end the season well. It, it wasn't a team that you were thrilled playing, and Ole Miss beat them and took care of business, but they were down 28-3 to on the Plains, scored 40 unanswered points. I know it's not a good Auburn team, but still, they did go to College Station and win, something Alabama could not do this year. Like they, Those are real things that happen with this team, and every skill position player is returning to that team. Uh, they got to replace some pieces on defense. We'll see if they can continue playing at, at the level that they have. I think Zach Arnett is one of the most underrated coordinators in the SEC for sure. He's really good at what he does. But, yeah, I, I felt like I was a little harsh on him. I, I didn't mean to be. They are trending in the right direction. But you did see a lot of flaws. Because a lot of people around here are doing the, well, you know, if – the refs don't do this. Well, there's one more win, so they're eight and four. And if this happens and they're nine and three, and if this happens, they're this and that. They, they made too many mistakes as a team. It was an identity thing. And, and the, yes. every week you heard, well, if they just clean this up, but they never cleaned it up. Yeah, no, exactly. I think that eventually becomes who you are. I'm fascinated, though. Like, last thing on it before we get to the coaching search, they play five true road games next year. Like, you better win your home games because you go at Kentucky. I, I mean, I don't know what Kentucky looks like, but State kind of owns Kentucky. I think they – I'd give them a – if you made me flip a coin right now or gun to my head would be a better analogy, I would say they probably win that. Obviously, Alabama's a tough one. But, like, I don't know what Arizona is next year. They probably suck. State probably wins that game. But that's September, Mike Leach, which has proven to be a little bit different than late October, November, Mike Leach. And then you have, you know, at Alabama, what's the other – oh, at LSU in week three. That's right after the Arizona game. That's just – like they could be a much better team next year, but they could only improve by one win or enter to the same mark. So I'm just curious to see how that how that progresses. But I mean, how old yeah, plays... trading Vanderbilt for Georgia with your East opponent is pretty that's not brutal. a good break by by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but then Ole Miss, you play six games and then you play the West to finish. That's a fascinating schedule. Ole Miss plays four non-conference. Uh, Vanderbilt, whoever the East opponent is, is that Kentucky? I want to say it's Kentucky next year, and then the West. That's how they finish the year. I'm fascinated by both of them. It is but. Kentucky and Oxford. Yeah, it, it, it's never too early to look at next year's schedule, right? So, I think this is play finishing the season off playing the West. Obviously, that's not fun. Like that's really less than ideal. Luckily for them, they get a really late buy, so those six games are broken up three and three, as that opposed buy, to this year where they had a really hurt early buy this year. I think that was significant. Absolutely. But whoever the new quarterback is, whether it's Dylan Gabriel, uh, whether it's Luke Altmaier, I suppose, or, or somebody else that is in the portal or will be in the portal that we're not aware of, 
uh, Wilson Love was asked uh, about tonight where Lane Kiffin was, or during his speech, he said that Lane Kiffin is off looking for mass replacement tonight. And that's why he wasn't oh. at the Connor League. <laughs> so uh, for whatever that's worth, the new quarterback's going to get broken in an extremely easy schedule. I, I mean, Kentucky's not going to be easy. They're not. But, I mean, they could and probably will be 6-0 and hosting Auburn on October 15th. That's way, I mean, that's way, 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 right. way, way, way ahead of ourselves. But the Vegas favorite in their first six games will likely be them before they go to Auburn. That's a fascinating dynamic because, look, I, I, I wrote on the Dirt Neal's picks last week. I got bored at my office. Someone at the Athletic wrote a column about why it hasn't worked for Jeff Collins at Georgia Tech. I, for whatever reason, I read all 2,000 words of that sucker. I was, guess, just that bored what happens when you have a desk job i don't see them losing at georgia tech but who the hell knows the third game of the year that's and then like three that's gonna be three games well i'd like to see what the bowl comes out but presumably three games in atlanta in like 13 months for old miss that'll be kind of weird how that works out but uh yeah it's gonna be fascinating i uh both teams have really interesting schedules in very, very different ways. That even that Arkansas game in the second to last week of the year before you get stayed on a short week, that that's brutal. Getting the bye week for Alabama at home. Get an Alabama game in November. That'll be good stuff. That'll be kind of fascinating. So we'll uh I am sure we'll spend all offseason breaking that down. Love that. Yeah, I didn't mean to to go down the schedule road today. My bad. No, no, not at all. I mean, I think it's interesting to look at it. And, you know, it probably is a decent teaser into who's going to be coaching a couple of these teams. I actually think we have our answer to just about all of them from an old Miss standpoint. I don't know where to start with this silly season stuff. I love a good media roasting as much as the next guy. I would probably save that for when we get to the reporting, how uh, Brian Kelly's contract details were reported. Let's just go somewhat chronological order. Lincoln Riley is now out in Manhattan Beach and doesn't have to play. Well, I don't know how it would work if he'd stayed Oklahoma, but if he had chosen um, LSU, he would not have to beat regularly beat Florida, Auburn, Alabama, and, uh, you know, Lane Kiffin at Ole Miss and even stayed at Mississippi State and Mike Leach just for the right to keep earning his uh, very lucrative paycheck. This was um, – I don't know if this was Dan Mullen doing what he did to Tennessee to leverage the Florida job or he there was just never anything real here. But the piece about how Lincoln Riley ended up at USC, unless I've missed something, have not come out yet. Like, this just kind of happened and everyone was like, okay. Like, what was your take on this? I, I was shocked. Because, I mean, look, we're going we're gonna to have Antonio Morales, our buddy uh, who used to cover Ole Miss, on the show on Friday. And I just texted him. I was like, did you see this coming? And he just was like, hell no. So I think this is a good <laughs> way to encapsulate as anything. I took Lincoln's statement during his press conference that uh, he didn't really start talking to USC until Sunday morning. And he got hired Sunday afternoon. I was like, oh, no way. Uh, nobody believes that, right? But... Nobody that covers the team thought that that was a thing until Sunday. So maybe there is a, a little bit of truth to it. I, I'm, I'm surprised at the same time, not surprised. Because on it depends on how you want to look at it. Because I've seen a lot of reaction to Lincoln Riley going to Southern Cal as, well, of course he would. It's easier to win championships there. And I disagree with that. The quality of life as a coach is better there. 
less stressful games. The recruiting environment is very different on the West Coast. It's not near as dirty. And if you're doing well in the state of California, you really don't have to leave the state of California to get great players. And he's already just rolling in recruiting right now. He's had the job for, what, 48 hours. And he's already got commitments everywhere and and all that. So he's doing a good job in recruiting. But quality of life as a coach at an elite program in a bad conference is great. Ask Dabo Swinney at Clemson. They don't play. He didn't play any ranked teams ever. His weekends are not stressful the same way Nick Saban's are. But when people say it's easier to win championships at Southern Cal, that's where you lose me. Because maybe this is too simple of a rationale. If it was easier to win championships at Southern Cal, why haven't they? Why has LSU been to three national championships with two different coaches and won two of them since the last time Southern Cal won a national championship? Same thing people are saying about Miami with Lane Kiffin if that job comes open. Well, it's easier to win championships at Miami. Is it? Then why don't they? Is quality of life better as a coach? Sure. But how is it that Ed Orgeron, Ed Orgeron won a national championship at LSU, but nobody could at Southern Cal since 2004. Why could Les Miles go to two and win one at LSU when nobody could at Southern Cal since 2004? That, that's where, where people lose me in that, well, it's easier to, the path to a championship is easier there. Is it though? Because they don't do it. Oh, the path to a championship is easier at Miami. Why don't they do it? Oh, they make bad hires. LSU made bad hires, and they still won. Ed Orgeron's a bad hire. He was a bad hire. He didn't change at all. He had a better job. And he won a championship. That's where I, I maybe it's splitting hairs. Maybe that's a too simplified of a rationale, but it doesn't surprise me. I would rather be the head coach at Southern Cal than LSU because the quality of life is better. But if I was going to get the best players and compete for a championship, LSU, to me, is a, a better place to get that opportunity to do that. It, it's two things, I think. One of the things you're probably getting at is the – we'll start with the – I think it's misconstrued. It's probably easier to get – to have the opportunity to compete for one. Like, to get one of those four spots, it's probably easier out in the West Coast. Now, to win two games when you get there, uh, Lincoln Riley, hell, he knows better than anyone else. Uh, it's a little harder once you get in and start playing those SEC teams. It's almost in that sense, like not a ton different than Oklahoma, right? I mean, right. they became the Oklahoma's on the verge of becoming the new Notre Dame, where every angry Twitter user after watching the game, uh, you know, the first playoff game on the one four that's, you know, 28 three or 28 seven, four minutes left in the second quarter. It's like, why the hell did we let this four seed in there? It's like, well, you got to find four. But so, like, I think it's similar in that sense. I do think it it's probably easier to play for the opportunity or to get to the opportunity. But, you know, with this 12-team playoff coming sometime in the next couple of years, it's going to be slightly easier for everybody. The other part of this is I think really what you're getting at is, well, part of the reason Miami hasn't done it is because, I mean, I think the best example of this, when all the Lane Kiffin smoke started happening, you started kind of hearing rumors of, well, they're recommitting to football. Like they're you're hearing 20, 30 million poured into football. Well, where the hell was that money for the last two decades? What the hell does that mean? And what is it actually going to as you guys cruise to your off-campus stadium? Like, like if 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 money's not a problem in this 20, 30 million dollar figure is just gonna you know be poured into football out of thin air, where the hell was that shit before? <laughs> yeah. was, it, was that frozen somewhere? Was that like an escrow? I don't understand. 
but I think it does. That, that is telling in some sense that Miami doesn't play the game like these SEC West schools do. The reason that Orgeron won a national title without being able to speak coherent English, and the reason that Les Miles won it while eating various forms of sod was because they play the game and they have tons of money. And like, you know, when it came down to it, when you need to get the players, particularly up front on the defensive side of the football, they were going to do whatever it took to make that happen. And by they, I don't even mean just the coaches, everyone around them. And you're, you're firing a uh, more power Even the local hospitals. Yes, exactly. Our, Our Lady of the Lake. Like you, you're firing, you know, this is not a moral, morals aside here. This you're firing a bigger, more powerful gun at both of those programs. I mean, if look, if if Ole Miss was if, if they were if their program was in the, the shitter, I mean it has been a couple times. You know what you didn't hear when Ole Miss hired Lane Kiffin? That they're recommitting to football. That's that's right. there's a reason that they play the game as best they can. They play the game well by most every standard in college football, just not by the ridiculous, insane SEC West standard. So I, I think there's some of that at USC as well. Now, if you made me compare the two programs and say which one's more likely to get back in the game enough to make it happen and be relevant again, I'm going USC all day over Miami in terms of like Miami to me is closer to that Nebraska, Tennessee category that we talk about where it's like, maybe this is not happening again, different reasons. But like, if you made me guess which one got back into it and started playing the game a bit, I would go USC, which is another interesting aspect of this. I think fit a lot of times is overrated. Like Ed Orgeron didn't win a national title because he's from the Bayou and talks like those folks and you know, whatever else is going with that. Like, and he can Lincoln say Raleigh, that was kind of, correctly. Yeah, like Lincoln Raleigh doesn't need to wax a surfboard to be successful at, at, at Southern Cal, but he does seem from the very, I say little I've read, I've tried to read more about him in the last couple of days, a little stiff. It's not even like Brian Kelly Prickly, which we'll get to in a minute, just a little square. Now, like, I don't understand he probably knows how it's played, but I just wonder if he's like the dynamic personality to kind of get everything done out there because I think what they've been searching for since Pete Carroll left is kind of the next Pete Carroll. I don't think there'll ever be a day again. Maybe I'm wrong that Snoop Dogg and Will Ferrell is on the sideline again. And that's just like the greatest show in town. I mean, we, we were kids when that was growing up. Lindell White was their backup running back. and was a superstar. Like when we were kids, he was awesome. Loved the visor. He was a little chunky, nice player for the Titans for a hot second. But I guess point being, they're sort of looking for that dynamic personality to bring like the West coast flashback. And I'm not sure if that'll happen, but I'm curious if he gets enough people reinvigorated to kind of, uh, I mean, for lack of a better phrase, have more funds to play dirty. Yeah. Yeah. And it looks like they're already doing that uh, as well. I mean, that that's the thing that you have to do. Uh, we've seen it time and time again. And your point about Miami is a great one. I, I hear people say all the time, well, you know, you don't have to leave Dade County to fill field a roster at Miami but, but the thing is, everybody wants into Dade County. And when you've got Georgia and you've got Alabama and Auburn and Ohio State, who has great success in Florida somehow, uh, they're doing it in ways that Miami hasn't. And maybe they'll magically snap their fingers and start playing the game too. I mean, De'Ara King got a bunch of NIL deals that everybody quickly regretted. Uh, with all due respect to the kid that got hurt, it's not his fault. But still, why is a hockey team's given him 20 grand to promote themselves. I don't understand that, but he got it and good for him. Maybe that'll start happening at Miami. Maybe that'll work. But for right now, a kid's going to leave Dade County to go to Tuscaloosa. A kid's going to leave Dade County to go to Athens. 
knowing how Georgia and Alabama do this, how they operate. And if Miami doesn't operate like that, they're never going to get players, regardless of who the coach is. It doesn't matter who the coach is. Maybe Lane Kiffin could get that out of him. Maybe Mario Cristobal, which uh, your boss has hinted at multiple times now, not hinted at, straight up said that that's who they would go after if they do make a change for Manny Diaz would be Mario first. And I suspect he would take that job pretty quickly. Maybe he gets that out of him. But until I see it, I don't believe it. The U's also not cool for any of these kids growing up. I was barely old enough for the U to be cool. Like, I mean, I remember the Maurice Claret game. I know he plays at Ohio State, but that national title game. Like, but none of these kids care about that. I mean, you know, could you ingratiate yourself more and kind of bring back the Ray Lewis's and the Ed Reeds of the world? Like, I guess. But, I mean, you heard Ray Lewis talk lately. He just says a bunch of words in a very, like, mystique-sounding voice that don't actually make any sense. I don't think that's relating to a lot of kids. So, like, there's not a whole lot there. I mean – is there a Nevin Shapiro 2.0? That was really what was fueling that bad boy way back in the day. And I'm just curious if that happens again. And on the USC front, you would think with this NIL thing, and I, we still don't know how all this is going to turn out because eventually there's going to be a market correction and we're going to have a better idea how this works. You're starting to see the uh, some of the seeds planted of how this is going to be organized behind the scenes. Uh, in terms of getting kids deals. And there's some programs that are a little more ahead of it than others. But you're starting to see how that's going to work. And you would think in a place like Los Angeles and USC, like it would be easy to go find kids there. And is Lincoln Rowley the guy to kind of get that organized and make that happen, whether it's him himself or, you know, his staff, I have no idea. But at the same it's time. It's already going down. Well, there's yeah, exactly. Happening. So but the Weldon made a good point on the other one was too, was like he – he, he would like emphasize, he quietly emphasizes Southern California recruiting, like all the way back to like August. And no one seemed to notice it. He had like four kids committed to Oklahoma from Southern California. And like all four of them immediately like, yep, we are now uh, Trojans. So like, I don't, makes I wonder, you wonder knowing Clay Helton's status going into the season. I it know, makes you that, wonder. It's, it's interesting. I, I, I would like, like, that's the kind of conspiracy theory I like. I'm just curious, like, if he's a, if they're able to continue that, or I say continue that, if they're just able to kind of monitor, like make it worth these kids while enough for them to become a power again. I don't know how that works. Obviously, LA, there's a lot of stuff out there, a lot of opportunity, but I mean, hell, they're like also like the 10th best show in town currently. And so, like, I'm just curious to see how that would work. Um, I do think it's going to work because even if it doesn't translate to playoff success, if he gets one kid every two years uh, that plays quarterback in California, not to leave California. That guy's good enough. If I say that, I think he needs to evolve slightly with some of this air raid slash run stuff that he does. Like some of I, Mike Leach to his credit, you know, talk about him not evolving. I think he's evolved slightly from the air raid concept. Well, um, Raleigh comes from the same tree, but man, they really struggled to get kids open in the latter part of the year. Like Caleb Williams had that great thing, game coming off the bench for Texas, but there are times where he's running around, and he kind of looks silly. But then when you actually look at it and listen to like, you know, some of their coordinators and Riley himself talk about it, no one's getting open. And so I think he needs to evolve from that standpoint. But my overall point here is if he gets a couple of those quarterback prospects from California not to leave the state, he's going to win 10, 11 games in the Pac-12 every year. What that translates to in the postseason, I don't know. But this is going to be an overwhelming success from a league standpoint, I think. I just wonder what happens after that. I do too. I, the fit makes sense. And 
what you said about quarterbacks is especially interesting because I think it also directly correlates to my opinion on Brian Kelly, which we'll get to in a little bit. But, I mean, look at what he's done with quarterbacks lately. And these are guys that have been rejects. I mean, Baker Mayfield was a reject at Texas Tech. Nobody wanted him. Alabama pushed Jalen Hurts out the door. He wasn't going to play at Alabama. He was just going to be a backup. Lincoln Riley made them both NFL starters. Heisman Trophy winner. First round pick. And Kyler Murray is now starting in the NFL at five foot two. It's really remarkable what he's been able to do in that system in, in quarterback development. Now you bring a guy like what you mentioned, one of these California five stars that are just littered in that state, one of which just committed to him today, a 2023 five star who is the quarterback behind Arch Manning, by the way. I mean, it stands to reason that he's going to create superstars there because he's done it his whole Oklahoma tenure. Yeah, and, like, there's also an element to this. It's pretty good-looking, dynamic guy. Like, I would, I'm convinced Cliff Kingsbury would win 11 games a year at USC just because he would rock the shit out of a visor on the sideline. He's a pretty good offensive mind. So, you <laughs> oh gotta man, that Shepard tweet that got everybody. I mean, my gosh, I, I can't believe that created an actual news cycle. Cliff Kingsbury is not going to coach at Oklahoma. He's no one is leaving, leaving an NFL job for a college job. You could maybe convince me the urban thing gets so toxic to where he's like, oh, I got to leave I, or makes up some health thing. I don't know. But there's no one leaving an NFL job unless they are. If, if Unless they're losing Rule was two and nine this year or something. And it was like, Hey man, you're getting fired. This has not worked out. I could maybe see it, but if you have a sliver of job security in the NFL, no one is leaving to go back no. to college. It's just not realistic. That was the dumbest news cycle. I mean, Cliff Kingsbury has got the best team in the NFL right now. He gets to live in the Valley outside of Phoenix. One of the greatest places in America to live where Cliff Kingsbury lives right now. It's the best. I mean, it's world-class living. And he does not have to call and flirt with a single 16-year-old. He didn't have to do it. He didn't have to get one teenager to like him. It's the best job in the world. And the fact that people took that as, well, maybe, is ridiculous to me. I can't even believe that that became anything other than a Schefter tweet. <laughs> Schefter. I mean, that came dangerously close to the two-year anniversary of his Condoleezza Rice deal. So I don't know what's going on with that guy oh these days. God, I, I don't know if he has dudes that. running his accounts. You know, there was a report <laughs> a couple of weeks ago of like Woj sending out PowerPoints of how many social media interactions he gets. This is a, this insider stuff is turning in like less journalism to just like, I hate this is a crude term, like information horse, and they just run with it. And that's probably yeah. something we could get to a little bit for for the Brian Kelly aspect of it. But as we kind of, as we, as we dive toward that direction, how, where are you on the Scott Woodward scale? Because he's a fascinating figure. My God, does that pull guy pull big names from other places to his place? Uh, I mean, the, the track record speaks for itself. Chris Peterson, how uh, Kim Mulkey, Jay Johnson from Arizona to LSU. That's probably less of a coup because that LSU baseball job, you'd snap your fingers and anyone's probably lining up for that. But you know, I mean, he got, I'm trying to think of who else. He got Buzz Williams at A&M. Like, that guy loves to make splashes, and his track record, his batting average is pretty damn high. Where do you fall on the scale of he got played by Mel Tucker, he got played by Jimbo Fisher as leverage, he got played by Lincoln Riley, and he just threw a big m money at the next big-name guy? Or 
some of that, whether it was Tucker, Jimbo, Lincoln, all three, none of that was actually that real. And he kind of got his guy. I'm somewhere in the middle, but where do you fall on it? Yeah, I, I certainly don't buy that he got his guy the whole time. I saw some of that spin from uh, LSU media today that, oh, well, maybe he, Brian Kelly was always who he targeted. I don't buy that at all. Is it too Max Kellerman-y to say that I'm not as impressed with him as everybody else is? No, so I'm – no. It's really I, easy to hire you. coaches the way he has when you just pay them stupid money. I mean, Jimbo Fisher was failing at Florida State, by the way. He and was that losing was, that was bound for divorce no matter what. It was heading towards that. Absolutely, they were in marriage counseling, and they were sitting on opposite ends of the couch – and afterwards, they didn't talk for hours. Like, it was over. They just hadn't taken the rings off yet. And he throws a ridiculous, con- an unprecedented contract at him. And I guess credit to him for getting him. But it took 10 years, $75 million, which at the time was a massive, unprecedented contract. And so he hires Kim Mulkey, which if you're paying $3 million for a women's basketball coach, it's a bad decision. I'm, I'm sorry. I mean, Oh, it's a great hire and all this stuff. It is. She's going to win a lot, and it's going to cost a lot of money, and you're not going to earn anything. It's $3 million into a sinking ship. That's, that's what it is. And Some people take that as disrespectful. It's more just reality. Women's basketball loses money. So the more money you spend on it, the more money you lose in it. And LSU is going to lose money. So congrats to him for – hiring her away from Baylor with a stupid salary. Does she ba- have another son that plays shortstop, though? We didn't oh, I hope that so. in. I hope so. And then the baseball search, uh, anybody that pretends like they found their guy, that they're also full of it. He wanted two other people that he couldn't hire because of off-the-field stuff. So that's not impressive to me when you, when you target people that have issues that make them unhirable after you've targeted them. And then you go get somebody from Arizona because again, you have more money than anybody else can offer. That's not impressive to me. I'm not impressed with stuff like that. And then in this search, Brian Kelly's a good hire, but you got played by Lincoln Riley and Jimbo told, you know, a bunch of times and who knows about the candidacy of Mel Tucker. I don't know, but it took a hundred million dollar contract on your third candidate to get quote your guy. I'm that just doesn't blow me away. Like it blows away other people. It's just not as impressive to me as it is for some. I'm fascinated by it. I hope uh, if Brody Miller by off change for listening to this, can we please get another one of those in-depth uh, reporting deals on how this actually came to be? Because there's there, I, I, like, I look at this two ways. I do agree that look, this was not, from the time they fired Ed, he didn't walk off and be like, all right, how do we get Brian Kelly? There's just no way that that's the case. But what I, one of the things I found interesting, I can't, what's the, what's the Notre Dame AD's name? It's some name I have trouble pronouncing anyway. I know the face, but. Oh gosh, he's, the, he's on the, uh, the expansion committee too. Yeah. Um, so he had an interesting quote about Brian Kelly. Jack Swarbrick. Yeah, so he said something, and I, I can't pull it up in live action without it being terrible podcasting, but he he said something regarding how he wasn't necessarily surprised about uh, Brian Kelly leaving. Oh, here it is. I actually did find it. Credit to me for being an internet sleuth. 
Uh, there's, he said, there's just a sense you get when you work closely with someone for 12 years that there's a certain restlessness, and I could sense that. There's a Freudian slip or two along the way that sort of grabbed my attention. Whether that was intentional or not, you just felt like it. It was a little bit like someone who might be open to a different opportunity. There's another quote down somewhere further that is, I don't think they put in this ESPN story, but they, I think that someone asked him when, and he was like, eh, for about a couple weeks, whatever a couple weeks means. So I don't necessarily think that they were zeroing on him from the start. I'm not that naive, but I do think he maybe kind of cast a wide-ish net to where he probably reached out three, four of those guys. I mean, hell, uh, I can't remember if it was Bruce Feldman or Brett McMurphy who kind of put out like, hey, he's going to make Dabo Sweeney say no. And everyone was like, what an idiot or whatever. And it's like, look, neither one of those guys are into the hot take culture. Like Feldman is as connected as anyone in this industry. And I mean, my God, the <laughs> Brett McMurphy upended Ohio State while writing on his Facebook. He was writing Facebook statuses that was changing the landscape of college football, like pretty connected guys. And whichever one of them said it, I can't remember. Like I admire him some degree for swinging for the fences. I actually believe he might've, contacted whoever whether it's Dabo directly or whomever else I don't pretend to know how that works and was like hey thoughts like he shot his shot and so I wonder if he did that with four or five people and got serious with a couple of them and then eventually landed on Kelly like I wonder if he cast a wide enough net to where barring complete disaster he kind of covered it like all his bases and covered his own ass if that makes any sense I don't think he like I mentioned was dead set on Brian Kelly from the start, but I wonder if he identified four huge name guys, five huge name guys kind of put out feelers on all of them, maybe got burned on one or two and maybe didn't think it would get to the third or the fourth. And that's what he got it on. Cause I thought that quote from the Notre Dame AD was quite interesting. Yeah. And then I don't know if you got to see, so a handful of Notre Dame players have a podcast that is actually on Cowherd's podcast network. Did you see that? No, they, they, what, were, they what recorded this? one uh, Sunday night. Oh, God. After the news broke, before they had their team meeting. And by the way, the most measured reaction to him leaving that I heard. I, I was shocked. They were like, you know, people say it's going to ruin his legacy. I disagree. You know, I wish him the best. It's all good here. But that's the thing. There was no anger. There was, they said, they all said they were surprised. But it was largely indifferent. You should listen to it. The, the vibe I got to, from after them, this, to be completely honest, that's fascinating to me. It, it was largely indifferent. They, they all seemed like, eh, whatever. You know, he was good here. We won games. All good. Like, I like coach. Best of luck to him. We're all good. And they started talking about who they want to replace him. They didn't care. And it's just, it's just four players. That is not a good sample size of 85 but they didn't seem broken up about it at all. They didn't seem happy either. They just seemed indifferent. And that's kind of the vibe I got reading some of the quotes from the press conference today was, yeah, it, you know, it's kind of time. It felt like for everybody involved, it was kind of time here. It's a fascinating dynamic where... They're one of six teams that has a chance to win a national title. I agree with you, but it is a wild dynamic. Yeah. I. I wonder I if that's sit? just how he is. I think there's an element of just how this guy is because that was the one thing I wanted to get to next as we get into like the feel, like the actual fit of this. So my God, someone, someone, I can't remember who it was, but it was a, it was Rob Domofsky. It was a 2019 story from him who covers the Green Bay Packers for ESPN. Great reporter. 
he had a story about how Matt LaFleur, did you see this? Matt LaFleur and Robert Sala yeah, yeah. were GAs at Central Michigan way back in the day. And they got invited to a Christmas party or holiday party or something at Brian Kelly's house. And turns out they were not invited to the party. He wanted them to park cars and shovel snow, which, I mean, my God, that'll, that'll get a Greek organization kicked off campus this, these days at the University of Mississippi. Not that that's a bad thing at all, but, like, my God, he was treating them like pledges. I, I, I don't get, like, shocked by much anymore, but I was like, holy shit. And then when you combine <laughs> it with some of the other stories about the guy, I wonder if the lack of surprise was – I mean, not that not I, I get there was probably some like, hey, he might have a foot out the door when the AD was saying that. But I wonder if there was some like nothing this guy would do would surprise me because he seems like he only cares about himself because I don't even I haven't even listened to the podcast you're talking about yet. But it sounds like a group of players that were like, you know what? He never necessarily like backstabbed me or anything, but you could tell this is a guy that was sort of about himself, but it's all good because we won a lot of games. If that makes yeah. any sense, because he left the you know, he left Cincinnati at a team banquet, they were undefeated going to play in the sugar bowl against whatever. And he went to the bank of it was like, top. I am uh, actually headed uh, a couple hours North. So like, you know, good luck down in new Orleans type of thing. And look, that's how these things happen. But yeah. he is a guy that is, you know, on the scale of Tommy Tuberville, you know, leaving when he's talking, leaving for Cincinnati, Cincinnati's just getting screwed left and right on this. Or I guess he, they were the beneficiary of this one while at a dinner with a tech recruit, to hell, I don't know, name their coach that had kind of a tearful goodbye. He seems way more on the Tuberville scale. Very, There's a right and wrong way to handle it. And I hate, I actually hate that term. There's a way to make things really awkward and like sort of messy. And there's a way to make things not. And I get, he can't control every leak, but he seems like a guy that doesn't really care that much. It seems like a guy about himself. And, you know, as much as I wanted to, as much as I don't want to get into the whole, like, you know, he had the kid die while filming a practice. There was a, wouldn't, didn't he have a sexual assault deal? I hate to sound like I'm minimizing it, but there was something else in there. I'm just not well read on either one of those at this point enough to be like, look at this. But like at a certain point, like you, you get enough stories and enough anecdotal evidence. You're like, okay, this is just kind of how this guy is. Yeah. And is it okay to say that I, I don't like the fact that, Cincinnati could possibly make the playoff and have to be without their coach while completely understanding why it happens. I feel like I'm, I'm such a freedom fighter, you know, like I'm Dan Wolkin up here with my blue check mark in my uh, column in Gannett publications and my access to the NCAA. But the I do think favors in the country. Hey, one of them with a dwindling readership, but hemorrhaging money. Absolutely. Have you looked at their stock prices lately? Amazing. I need to call my, my 401k guy and tell him to throw it all in the newspapers. But there is a, I think it's really shitty and the players seem to be okay with it. So whatever, uh, I'm not going to say that Brian Kelly's a like, turn it into, Oh, he's a bad guy for leaving, but couldn't this have waited a week? I, I wish there was a situation. Probably not. The answer is probably no, because if they make the playoff, is he going to coach in the playoff for another month at Notre Dame while recruiting for LSU? How does that work? Maybe there's no way to get around it, but I do hate the fact that we are in an environment where you've got this guy who probably spent the years that these players have been in his program talking about responsibility, accountability, all the abilities out there. And right before they get a chance to play in the playoff, their leader's gone. I hate that that happens. 
I understand why I'm not naive. I get it. I get it's a business. Everybody's in it for themselves, as you should be in life, because nobody's going to care about you. So go get yours whenever you can get it. I do hate that this is an acceptable thing, though, that you've got a leader that, that is leaving his team potentially before they can play for a national championship. That I don't like. I understand it. I still don't like it, though. What does it say about the sport? I mean, look, we I've done this rant a thousand times dating back to when we were on radio, but it's like, look, you appreciate the pageantry of it. It's wildly entertaining, but like you're one of six coaches, you're one of six teams that has a realistic shot left to win a national title and your coach just left. But at the same time, I'm kind of with you. I get it as well, because the part of the reason that this was inevitable, like the reason it couldn't wait isn't part of that, the early signing period. I mean, you're kind of screwed. There's no way he could hop on afterward and, you know, be dealt a full deck, I guess, per se, because who in the hell, particularly with the way the LSU thing ended, who's recruiting for LSU and getting them to the finish line in the early signing period. So like, there is no way this could wait, but I'm also with you. I can't imagine being a player at one of these programs. We're just covering it. I can't imagine covering Notre Dame and you're like, you know, you get two losses here and you get, you know, Notre Dame's get in, you might be covering a playoff game and all of a sudden it's like, Oh, never mind. They got an interim coach. Like the ship's probably sunk. Look, they can still get in. And what's his face. Uh, the defensive coordinator or whatever could, you know, still coach them in the game, I guess, but I, I don't give them much of a shot. But like, to me, that's the product of a broken system. And I think the early signing period plays into that as much as anything, because you have to have someone in place to get to the finish line with this. I mean, it's already hard enough when Ole Miss hired Lane Kiffin, it was always like, you can't hold this class against him because of what he had to deal with, like the truncated time period. But if you, you know, if you don't even take advantage of that slim window of time, you're you're double screwed. So I don't remember – my memory is so short. I don't remember why the early signing period happened, but it doesn't seem like it's helped a whole hell of a lot because, I mean, this sport's over January 6th or January 5th, whatever it is. I mean, back in the day, you at least had three weeks, like even yeah. after that was over. And no, no one that's playing in that game likely is ever moving school. So this is a unique scenario in that sense. But, like, the way this recruiting schedule is set up is screwed them over on that as well. Like just the sport in general. So like, I don't love it either, but I also understand it because like, again, like what, because barring winning a national title, he was not going to turn down that amount of money to coach at LSU. They could have gotten to the playoff right. and won a game and gotten to the national title game. I would bet he'd still want the LSU job. Hell they may could have won it. Notre Dame may could have caught fire and won the national title. And if you offered him an LSU contract, he's probably still taking it. Right. He is. And the Maybe thing that's is, a change winning it, but come on. Well, he also looks at that team and realizes that they have no chance at winning it either. Like even that's if Oklahoma true. State and Alabama lose, it, you know, it doesn't matter because they're not going to win the national championship. So maybe that makes it a little bit easier for him to swallow. And it's not his fault. You're right. There was one thing fascinating in uh, Swarbrick's press conference. Kelly was done. He was done. He didn't even give Notre Dame a chance to counter. He just said, I'm leaving. He didn't say, they're offering me this. What do you have? It was, and I'm did the leaving. Same thing. So these guys were done where they were uh, for separate reasons, I think. I mean, Neil has, I've listened to, to their podcast a lot lately. And, and Neil said many times that people close to Lincoln Riley have said that I, maybe I'm misquoting him. Forgive me if you listen to this, Neil, but uh, that he has expressed that Oklahoma was not ready for the SEC. 
How can you argue with the guy that's like at the helm of that every day? I, I'm not saying they can't have success there, but man, if that guy's saying that. And uh, here's the answer. They're not. They're, they're not ready. At least from the current roster, this Oklahoma team, if they played Ole Miss's schedule, would have four losses. At least. The last Big 12, I mean, the last Big 12 team from Texas that joined, and I know Oklahoma's not in Texas, so excuse me, I'm not the worst geography person. Close enough, whatever. Aside from, excuse me, put it to you this way, aside from Missouri, credit to Kerry Pinkle. Somehow that man won the East twice and went to two yeah. SEC championship <laughs> games, which might be the biggest Got anomaly smoked in, in both the of last them, two but, decades. You know. Aside from that, you have, I mean, the, the last Big 12 team to join that's not Missouri just is paying a coach $10 million to finish fifth in the West. Yeah. And I get they got kind of screwed last year. I agree. Like it's a different deal. I that's, I think we finally put to bed the Danny Cannell, like, Oh, SEC overrated. Like everyone knows how this works now. It's really just one division with respect to Kirby and Georgia and whatever Florida can do. It's really just one division is the, the best football in the sport. And it's not close. So I, I, and again, if the head guy is telling you that, that's why I didn't buy into the narrative. Well, he's just shirking the SEC. It's like, no, he doesn't want to go get his ass kicked with a program that's not ready. Like, that's, that's, you don't look around at whatever company you work for. And if you guys are, you know, about to take on some project or something like that's going to, you know, potentially define whether you have a job in five years or not, you probably wouldn't look around and go, you know, we're not ready, but I'm going to stick around here anyway. Like, he was like, the hell with this. Yeah. I'm getting and out of here. I think that's maybe the most telling about it. As far as Kelly, though, fit, fascinating to me. Because I think what he's done on the field at Notre Dame, I think, is remarkable. Like, I think he's, he's maximized whatever Notre Dame can be in the 21st century. The best version of it, in my opinion, is Brian Kelly. Maybe someone tops it, but I very seriously doubt it. But, man, he he's kind of a – you talk about Lincoln Raleigh being a little stiff. Like, if there's a college football version of a narc, Brian Kelly's that. And he's a 60-something-year-old guy who's, like, kind of grumpy at times. I'm curious – how he handles everything that comes with being the head coach at LSU, whether that's dealing with people that hold, you know, great influence behind the scenes. And I'm talking more on the booster side than the athletic department side, how he handles that. And I, not only that, I don't think he'd have a terrible problem recruiting, but like recruiting is a huge part of it, but it's also not everything. Like how does he handle the first time he goes eight and four? Does he act like an asshole in a press conference? Cause I promise you that's not going to fly down there. I'm curious how to how kind of one of the grumpier coaches I'll say in college football handles a job where you have to juggle a lot of things because football wise, I was like, okay, this is a great coach, but everything else that comes with it. I'm curious to see how he handles that because he's never been at a place where he's had to do that. Not even close. Yeah. No, nothing quite like this. Is it, uh, first of all, credit to him for being willing to look at what he's got at Notre Dame and realizing I'm not going to win a championship here. I'm in my sixties. They're giving me a big deal let me go try to win one like Lincoln is running away. However, you know, it can be spun from the sec. Brian Kelly's going head on. He recognizes the expectations two years removed from the greatest season in college football history gets Ed Orgeron fired. He's running right into it. So at least I give him credit for that, you know, not being afraid of the expectations and diving right in, but fit can work in, in two different ways, right? On one hand, I don't care about culture fit, in terms of can he say Chapatulas or has he ever had a crawfish before? Like, does he know what a roux is in a gumbo? I, you know, Ed Orgeron was perfect LSU and yet he still couldn't win. So from that sense that people talk about and 
you know, some of the jokes that were shared on the radio show today about how um, Brian Kelly's the guy that would ask for a poor boy sandwich. It's like, yeah, I mean, that's funny, but who cares if he can coach and win football games? It doesn't matter. Nick Saban wasn't from Louisiana. He wasn't a Louisiana guy. You hired him for Michigan State. He grew up in West Virginia, which is like, you know, Louisiana of the North. But still, he wasn't from there, and he won because he's a good ball coach. But to your point, I've got some concerns. I'm not as blown away by this hire either. Forgive me for going Max Kellerman again, as some people are. Oh, this just landscape-changing mega hire. LSU makes this huge splash, and Brian Kelly's going to do all this. Are you sure? Because, uh, yes, good football coach. I'm not saying it's a bad hire. I expect him to win games at LSU because he won games at Notre Dame, what, four of the last five or five of the last six seasons, they've won 10 games or more. But it's fair to say, right? that once he's gotten there, they haven't won. Now, it's easier to recruit to LSU than it is to Notre Dame. They have academic standards that are issues. But their composite class ranking right now is like number 12. Their their team roster talent right now, it's not like he's been recruiting terribly. It's not like it's that difficult. He's got classes ranked in the top 10, sometimes falling down into the teens. So talent acquisition hasn't been that big of an issue. But when they get there, they get embarrassed. They get embarrassed by Alabama. They get embarrassed by Ohio State. When Notre Dame has made it to the highest level of college football, they have not been competitive at all. And I brought this up on the show today. He hasn't developed a quarterback. And the counter argument to when I said quarterback development's a concern to me. Oh, well, no, that's not true. He has Deshaun Kaiser and Ian Book. Okay, thank you for proving my point. Deshaun, if just in 12 years, your best quarterbacks that you've developed are Deshaun Kaiser and Ian Book, you're not going to win in the SEC. He went in Kaiser's ear enough to convince him to stay in school. Remember, that was a kid that no one thought should come out, and he just did anyway. Yeah, and what is he doing now? I have no idea. I assume so, he's probably still a second, third string somewhere because usually with that high draft pick, you're not phased out yet, but points well stated. It's just not. To me, I expect him to win because I expected any coach that LSU hired to win. It is LSU after all. Ed Orgeron won there. If he can, Brian Kelly sure as hell can win there. But if I were a Mississippi State fan living in Flowood, I would much rather LSU. This is going to sound crazy. I would be much more afraid of Lane Kiffin coached LSU, of Lincoln Riley coached LSU, than I am of Brian Kelly coached LSU. Maybe it's marginal. Maybe it's not by much. But I think if you're a fan of another SEC school, you're okay with this compared to what it could have been. Yeah, I mean, I, I was about to even just go full on first take and say, how about Sam Pittman? I'd like to see what he does without a couple more coordinators. But that's kind of part of the point as well. Like, None of us know anything when it comes to this anyway. That's the whole point. We Everyone gets so wrapped up in, well, this guy's making $10, $12 million. Like, obviously, he's going to win 10, 11 games, and they'll get to the playoff a couple of times, and it'll be great, and this is how it's going to go. Like, none of us know anything. I mean, Florida wanted Chip Kelly before they got on Dan Mullen, and Dan Mullen clearly didn't work out despite going 34 and 15, but you get how that ended. That's not really – 
here or there, but they wanted Chip Kelly before that. And they wanted Scott Frost before that is yet to go to a bowl at Nebraska. Like all these things that when Mississippi state hired Joe Moorhead in comparison to Ole Miss hiring Matt Luke. And you know, the comparison is probably not as relevant, but I just remember framing it that way. It's like, Oh, this hire checks every single box. Yes. Is he a Northerner, but he's got a good offense. He's got a pretty good reputation with quarterbacks. That didn't work out. Like none of us actually know anything. How it, you're another set. Like if you, if A&M goes seven and five next year, you're like, what the hell are they actually paying for with Jimbo? None of this stuff is a sure thing. And so that's what I'm fascinated by because now you're in the toughest division in college football to where who's the I mean, next year on LSU schedule with what they're working with. And I get it. They recruit better. This will change. But you look at all six West opponents, which one are you like? Yes, they'll beat them. There's, there's not a single one on there. No. And so I just wonder, like, eventually we're going to have to become more patient. This probably leads into the 12 team playoff deal. Whereas like this 14 playoff, you have 20, 20 programs that think every year they should be in the 14 playoff two out of five years. And you start doing the math on that. You're like, that's not how this works. Particularly when, you know, 20 teams, 20 pro or four programs have like 20 of the 31 bids. So I'm curious to see how that'll work and how the 12 team will change it. But eventually there's going to have to be patience because someone is going to get paid. I saw a, a, one of the LSU SB nation sites, like someone's going to get paid 10 million bucks next year to finish third in the West. <laughs> like, I don't know how, why or how like that's, that's sustainable. Maybe it is maybe in 2030, we're sitting here arguing why Jeff Levy absolutely deserves 35 million at Alabama a year. I have no idea where this <laughs> is going because the TV money is only going up. I'm just, None of this to me is a sure thing. Not, whoever wins the, if, if you took Alabama out of the equation and it was like, who's winning the West next year, I would probably, well, I can't even do that. I would probably eliminate Auburn, but outside of that, I would just pick, I have no idea. So like Texas A&M, maybe, I mean, the talent there is just so, so great. So I mean, regardless of how soft level. they are, the talent is, is undeniable. Yeah, so just none of this is a sure thing, and I just want I, – I don't even know what I'm saying. I'm just I – don't, I don't know if there's a correction coming or what. I just – I don't think we know anything. And, like, lastly on that is the other side, the probably the least talked about hire but might actually end up being the best one is Florida hiring Billy Napier. Um, you know, I mentioned Brody a couple of times on this podcast. He wrote a really great story about a month, month and a half ago on Napier kind of being the Saban guy who's very process-oriented – recruited very, very well to ULL for what it was. And all of a sudden he kind of, I mean, look in the world of circus coaching hires, Scott Strickland seemingly had one candidate, got him. And that was it. Like you never even heard a second name. The people that put out Kiffin were the dudes just trying to get you to click on their articles. I, I just, yeah. Scott Strickland was never hiring Lane Kiffin ever. It you know what, let's just get happen. to the media part of it. I'm bouncing around, but before we get to the Billy Napier thing, Dennis Dodd reporting last night that he's hearing that it's $15 million for Brian Kelly. What are we doing here as a media industry? Look, I'm not Dennis Dodd. One of the harder things to do is get connected. I not only had a program you cover, I experienced it firsthand. That was probably my biggest weakness as a reporter. But in fairness, I was 20 to 24 years old most of the time I was covering Ole Miss. Probably looked 10 years younger than that. So not Phil Longo was not like, oh, shit, this guy means business. I probably need to answer his calls. But, like, what are we doing here? Like, they offered the rumor or whatever was came out about the Lincoln Valley thing was eight years, 90 or eight years, 96. That's what, 12, 12 and a half if my MISM education holds well for me. 
did Dennis Dodgers get one text that was like here and it's 15 million. It was like, I'm running with this. Like, what are we doing here? I, tell me you didn't tell me you saw that and were just skeptical as I am because people ran with it. I thought that was the most ridiculous thing I'd ever heard. The, the second he tweeted that I saw, I thought, Nope, that's not <laughs> what? true. What are we doing and, here? And, and a guy that, uh, that writes Pelicans columns for the advocate quoted that was like, what? I, I refuse to believe that number. And all the replies were like, well, because it's not true. It's not true. Then I thought, okay, well, people are obviously not buying this. And then you Google Brian Kelly's salary this morning. I did when I was doing my live stream this morning. Saturday down south, Sports Illustrated. I mean, all of these people aggregated that report. Yes. It's to, to me, it's not a Dennis Dodd problem because there are a lot of people that make up stuff on the internet to, to get clicks and engagement and stuff like that. It's the people that saw that didn't even think twice about it. Not should I verify this? Wait, the, the guys at The Athletic are reporting that it's going to be 9 to 10. I should go with that. No, it was, let me clickbait the shit out of this. And every publication out there that just aggregates other people's reports ran with that. That's the bigger problem to me than just Dennis Dodd. It's the people that didn't even think twice was, yeah, let's put this in a 150-word story so we can get it on search engine optimization and just put it out there knowing that there's no way that that's real it's a two-pronged deal at how broken this whole thing is because look and i've listened to neil and chase the other day or a couple weeks ago where neil said something on the podcast it was not close to reporting anything he's like look i talked to someone the other day that like claims that lsu has gotten the clearance to go as high as like 15 million dollars i think was the number he threw out but he was just take, like, that's also part of the wiggle room you get working at subscription websites. Athletics is a little different. The message board site, I hate calling them fan sites because there's plenty of people there that do great work. But like Neil, when he puts something on the board, it's like he's just, you know, that's what his customers want. That's what he wants to hear. And he, but it's not even like disguised as reporting. Like when Neil like, or anyone that works at the sites actually reports something, that shit goes on the front page. And like, it's an actual story where Dennis Dodd, like the works at CBS to where like, if he reports something that's going out and just, I'm sure he got one text and was like, yeah, 15 million. Like that with it. I just, I, any, like I, if I were a reporter and I was actually running with that, like somewhat publicly or just completely publicly, I'd be like, maybe I should get confirmation on this or at least ask, you know, can I get like a year's length? Like, what are we talking about here? Instead of just tweeting out, hearing it's $15 million. This is the most ridiculous thing I'd ever heard. Anyway, that's a conversation for another day. It's just an indictment on what we have become as media. Yeah. And don't confuse what I'm saying. Like when Neil, you know, Neil's pretty well connected, well, very well connected. I put it, that's, I would put it that way. I'm just saying when he puts something out on the board, that's what he's doing for his customers, what he's hearing. No one is mistaking yes. that as concrete fact, I guess is what I was getting at. Like, right. to me, there's a stark difference between something like that and, you know, Dennis Dodd just putting it out on Twitter. And, and Dennis Dodd wasn't exactly like 100% on the NCAA investigation with Ole Miss either, but whatever. Anyway, to the Napier oh, part. Of- well, that's the same guy that reported that multiple people were going to die in the 2020 <laughs> season. So, you know, I mean, it's it's amazing that stuff like that continues to, to get paychecks on platforms like that. And here I am. Yeah. I mean, we both went to, we both went through somewhat. I know I have a business degree, but we both went to the journalism school through some degree and Ole Miss in the day and age of clickbait. And even I would have a problem showing up to work the next day if I just threw out something was 15 million and then it was like, oh, it's 5 million less than that. Sorry, I'll keep swinging. Like I, yeah. that, that five and a half million dollars less per year. <laughs> I mean, that's how off he was. Uh, it's, man, 
I, I, but I believe that Lincoln Riley's offer was more than what Brian Kelly got. I believe no, that. I, I believe that as well. I just the, the whole process of how this stuff's covered is baffling to me. What do you think of uh, Napier at Florida? I actually love this hire because look, if they're Florida had a clear problem aside from, from Mullen being a gigantic asshole, they weren't recruiting well. And they went and hired a guy that recruited the hell out of his G5 program, did it quietly, got it done cleanly. I have no idea how that's going to work with Kirby and his division, but I, if you're making me bank on one that's successful, I'm probably throwing more money on that than anywhere else. I'm a huge – I probably can't talk about this objectively. I'm a huge Billy Napier homer, actually. Uh, my, I mean, I grew up watching him play in college. That's uh, oh, he's a Furman guy, right? Yeah, that's uh, that's that's his autograph right there on this football. There we go. We got a live foot Furman purple paladin football. Let's go. Uh, F you all the time. Uh, that is actually something that they say. But so I'm a bit, I'm a big Billy Napier homer. I I remember him in college watching him. That's like one of my first real like sports memories with my dad was going to Furman games and Billy Napier was the quarterback there. But what blew my mind was the LSU people, media, and fans that were talking about the prospect of hiring Billy Napier as not being flashy enough. It wasn't the splash that you were looking for. And I kept thinking, okay, you guys are idiots, though. I mean, coached under Dabo, coached under Saban, has been in the Southeast, played in the Southeast, is recruiting well, and is a winner. And he's won different ways, too. One with really good running game. He's got good quarterback play, but it caters the way they operate to his personnel, like his four years at Louisiana, those teams don't all look the same. He's a really good football coach who's really, really well respected, has learned from the best. What more do you want besides a winner? And oh, not flashy enough, not splashy enough, whatever. Florida did a great job with this hire. Apparently Scott Strickland had one meeting with him and it was over. He like shut the search down on... They had a meeting on like Tuesday and they didn't announce it until the weekend, but Strickland left the meeting. This is my guy. Like, I don't have to ask for another candidate. He won me over already. Uh, I think he's going to win there and fairly or unfairly, Brian Kelly is going to be judged at LSU right next to Billy. They're, They're forever linked. And in this cycle, I wouldn't be surprised. Again, I'm a bit of a homer. If we look up, and Billy Napier is the most consistently successful one of this group. Well, that's what I understand about the money part of this, where it's like, are they going to give Lincoln Raleigh 12 and a half million? Is, you know, Jimbo Fisher going to go for 14, 15, whatever at LSU? We don't, it's already been probably proven that we don't know shit about any of this. This is all pretty much a crapshoot. Why yep. would you not take the guy that just built the gigantic, power, I mean, the closest thing to a G5 powerhouse that you could get outside of, I mean, I get the American, I'd put the American in a slightly separate category. To me, they're like the G6 or, you know, power six, if you wanted to get that close. But like that guy recruits well, been in a lot of big time programs and all he did was win. I don't understand the flashy aspect of it. I think I would like feel more confident in that guy's chances of winning at LSU than, I mean, this sounds dumb, but maybe even then Brian Kelly, he's a guy that's in the state of Louisiana. He has more of an S like more experience in how the SEC and all that works. It's just in this day and age where we're getting with more and more ridiculous contract numbers. And I don't even mean it from the standpoint of why not get this guy for 60 cents on the dollar, because there's no incentive to do that. All these programs do is spend money because that's all they need to do. They don't need to, there's no incentive to save or get something at a discount, but I would just take the guy that recruits very well, that worked under Saban as a winner 
as opposed to, you know, everyone being like, holy shit, it's Brian Kelly. Like, I just, we don't know anything about it. So I just think track record matter. And Kelly's not the greatest example because, you know, all he's done is win at Notre Dame. I just don't understand the Napier's not flashy arg enough. It's flashy enough argument because we don't know anything about this anyway. No one knew who, who Freeze was when he got the Ole Miss. And, you know, roll your eyes all you want. That got one huge at Ole Miss. Nick Saban was coming from a somewhat fledgling Miami Dolphins deal. No one knew who the hell Dabo Sweeney was. You know, Pete Carroll, people were pissed that that guy got the job when he first got hired. You don't know anything. So I don't, I would, I just wonder if decision makers in power, you know, for every Scott Woodward, I wonder if there's five other people out there that are like, I don't really give a shit about any of this. I'm just trying to find the best guy. I think fans should view that more in that lens as well, if that makes any sense. And, and why is it, this is probably a dumb question. Why is the desire to hire a sitting power five head coach? Why is that the qualification? I want to hire a sitting power five head coach like Jamie Chadwell, for example. I hear people all the time say if, if Kiffin leaves, they should just, the, the search should start and end down the hall with Jeff Levy. And I'm not saying Levy wouldn't do a good job. I think he would, but why would you limit yourself to that? when you've got somebody like Chadwell. No, he's not a power five head coach. But have you watched Coastal Carolina play football? You know how much fun that that offense would be in the SEC with Willie Korn as, as his offensive coordinator, former Clemson quarterback? How much fun that style of play and, and the, the stuff like behind the scenes with their program after their, their last game, they had a pizza eating contest. They, they got four players in the locker room after the game and gave them full pizzas. And they had an assistant coach that was like acting like a, a hype man at a WWE event. And they had a, a freaking eating contest in the locker room after the game. Like they, they do stuff like that. Uh, th there was one where they got a stuffed animal of, I forget their opponent. And they had a coach with a chainsaw in the locker room after the game, and they saw the, the – I mean, they're, they're having fun. The offense is fun and innovative and creative and new and unique. Why does that guy not get more phone calls? Coastal Carolina, that's not a job that, that you win at. Conway sucks. Myrtle Beach sucks. I'm sorry if you guys like it and you're listening. That's not a fun place to be. Coastal Carolina growing up was the place that everybody applied to. as It was the safety school. Because you knew the answer was yes. It's gross. And yet, he's got a fun brand, a winning brand. They've got more fans than they've ever had. Student body's growing like crazy. And the football product is fun. And yet, we went through a coaching cycle where so, and I guess Southern Cal got their guy and, and LSU got their guy and Florida got their guy. He didn't get looked at. He's not going to get looked at. didn't get looked at by Virginia Tech. They hired a coordinator from Penn State. Didn't even get a look. Why not? Why are you not looking at somebody like that? Why is the obsession with Power 5 experience when you've got a guy that is a head coach right now running a fun-as-hell program, winning at a place that makes it damn near impossible to win, and yet here he is winning? I don't get it. I really don't get it. And if Lane Kiffin takes a Miami job, which may or may not come open, and he probably won't get offered it anyway, but if he gets offered... If I'm Keith Carter, I'm on the phone to Conway, South Carolina, and at least giving him a look because that would be fun in the SEC. I don't care that he has not 
coached under Nick Saban or been a head coach at a power five school. Give me a guy that's winning and, and I'll figure it out. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. And like, that, it's, I hate, I, this is a bad comparison, but it's just funny you watch in the NFL, like, you know, no one, no NFL team is clamoring for John Fox because he went to two Super Bowls or even like Gary Kubiak. Like they're hiring dudes you've never heard of because this guy once took a piss next to Sean McVay. And like, I get it's different because the NFL is way more copycat. It's more, you know, condensed. There's only 32 teams, but like, you, you have like Zach Taylor. I remember when Zach Taylor got hired by the Bengals. The Cincinnati people I knew in media, particularly the ones that didn't cover the Bengals, were like, who the hell is this guy? And like, there's just so extremes on that. Then the way they're viewed is like their value is viewed as NFL head coaches versus college head coaches is fascinating to me. I mean, hell, Cliff Kingsbury is probably going to be the number one seed in the NFC. He went five and seven at Texas Tech. And like, again, none of that has any relevance. I'm just, we're so, it seems like college football head coaching searches are so narrow minded that they just end up, that's why most of them result and end up in ridiculous amounts of buyouts and it doesn't work out. So, Hell, I don't know. It's going to be fascinating. This uh, It's entertaining, if nothing else. Last thing before we get out of here, Kiffin's there at Ole Miss next year. I'm almost positive. I guess things could get weird, but it does sound like Manny Diaz might keep his job. Matt Zinitz reported that. He was the AL.com for a while. I think he's an on three now. Pretty connected guy. Kind of made his hay with the portal. Makes it sound like that. You know, you got other programs doing the stability thing, like Mark Stoops, whatever we think of that. But this felt like the coaching search carousel coaching carousel of the next half decade. And I'm not saying Lane Kiffin wouldn't leave next year or the year after that, but don't you get a very, very broad sense that if, you know, we'll miss out onto him this year, you maybe got a shot for a couple more seasons. It feels that way. Doesn't it? And I mean, I'm going to take your boss Neil's word for it when he says that if Miami does come open, Kiffin will not be the first option anyway. So I don't even see that. if well, I agree with that, I don't see him taking it either. Maybe that's just a guess. Yeah, I would be surprised. And I know it, I've got a, I've got a coworker that, well, he just wants to live in Miami. The thing is, you still got to work. You still got to, you still have to work. And living in Miami is great, but you still have to grind during the season constantly. It's not like you can just spend your Tuesday afternoon fishing when you've got practice and film and all that. I, I mean, He's got a situation at Ole Miss where he can hop on a jet and be in Boca in an hour and a half. So what's what's really the difference in terms of where you live when one job pays more, has a better chance of winning in a better conference, has more of a commitment to football, but about four hundred million dollars into facilities that you approved each one of? I just the the job at Ole Miss is so much better than the job at Miami right now. If really just living there is the difference, hop on the jet that you have free access to or can negotiate free access to and be at your house in Boca in an hour. What's the difference? Why, why is the guy, and also the other thing I don't understand about that, why is the guy that is notorious for bouncing around from program to program looking for a lifestyle play where he can just live out the rest of his days and coach football there? He's never stayed anywhere longer than, you know, three, four years. And I'm not saying that will will or won't happen at Ole Miss, but the whole like where he wants to go live in Miami. Why? That guy could go be the head coach of, 
name the program college or professional, and he'd probably still in the back of his mind be looking for what's next. Why is that guy looking to put down roots next to the water? I've never understood that aspect. Yeah. Would Lane Kiffin rather live in Miami than Oxford, Mississippi? I would probably say yeah. yeah. But like, why? Why is that? Why is that the total argument? I think it's because the rest of it doesn't have much merit. And look, if Lane Kiffin, if it, you know, lightning strikes and he takes the Florida job, I'm not saying there's no chance. I just don't understand the logic where it's like where he wants to go live in Miami. It's like why this guy doesn't like. Why is he thinking about retirement in a 401k? Do you think Lane Kiffin knows what a 401k is? Granted, he no. makes so much money, he doesn't need one. It's not a great example. But why is that guy thinking about retirement and where he's going to live in Florida when his entire MO is, I'm always keeping my name in the mix everywhere. I don't understand that logic. I don't either. But yeah, the the fact that it seems like Ole Miss is poised to keep him after a cycle that involved Southern Cal, Florida, possibly Miami, Oklahoma, LSU, Notre Dame, and he stays at Ole Miss long-term and, well, long-term, he locks in a new deal at Ole Miss, which will, what, have him between seven and eight million with a bunch of incentives, increased salary pool for his assistance, $400 million into his facilities. What job could come open in the near future that would be on the level of LSU or Florida? You know, if you survive this, how many are out there that you wouldn't survive? Very small list. And so this, it's obviously a great sign for Ole Miss. What I would, and maybe you can't do this. Maybe he's just never going to be that guy. I would ask for a little buy-in from Lane Kiffin, though. A little more buy-in to, to your program and what you're selling. Because maybe this is a crazy statement. Maybe this is really stupid. I feel like his name showing up in every single job, which, by the way, doesn't just happen because of clickbait. That's not the only reason why his name shows up in all of these jobs. That's got to be adversely affecting them in some way. I know it's affecting fans. Maybe that means nothing, but I talk to people that are like, Borky, I'm sick of this. There's a fatigue already. I, I, I can't tell you the number of people I've heard it from. And I went to the Texas A&M game this year, sat in the stands because I cannot sit in the stuffy press box with all those media people. Sorry. Uh, I can't do it. I sit with the normal people. I like to have beers before games and stuff like that. The people around me were talking about that. How how just sick of, oh, he's going to leave. Oh, he's going to leave. Oh, he's going to leave. His name's in every job. If I were Keith Carter, maybe it's not something you could ever get. And I'm not asking him to show up to the Pontotoc Rebel Club to give speeches on Tuesday nights in April. But... A little less of this, I think, would really help, especially in fundraising effort times. When you're talking about, hey, this new stadium expansion is going to be done in 2026. Well, if I'm a big booster with a big check, who's my coach then? Who's my coach then? Because right now, the way this is going, it's not going to be the guy you're trying to sell me to or sell to me. So who's going to be my coach then? A little bit more commitment from Lane publicly can help something. I, I, I hear people counter that. Oh, that's not true. It wouldn't change anything. I think it would. I hear from people, some of which have big checks, that say they're sick of it. You got If you're going to lock up a contract the size that Keith Carter's about to give Lane Kiffin, he needs to give a little too. Well, particularly with the season that he had in three years, that's good enough to be in the sports postseason. And potentially, I don't know how the hell it's going to shake out. I'd actually doubt they do the on-campus games might be hosting a home playoff game in four years 
Like, so I'm just yeah. curious how that changes the perception of like the old miss job or whatever, because, you know, whatever expectations versus resources are in that balance at, you know, the LSUs and the blue bloods of the world versus kind of the next tier below them being Ole Miss. I'm curious to see what that changes. I agree. It's going to be a fascinating off season. It is certainly not over with. we got a gajillion dudes names in the portal. Have you gotten tired of looking at Twitter yet to where anytime you see the notes app or whatever, you're like, Oh shit, what happened now? And it's like, actually it's just some random guy at Miami or it went random guy at West Virginia. I don't know who he is. It's going to take a lot of the shock value to wear off, but my God, is it exhausting to follow? Yeah, the portal thing, man. And the, what's really good about it, though, is I think we are seeing, and what we saw this year at Ole Miss is exactly what I thought going into it. It is an equalizer. That the Ole Miss defense without the transfer portal this year was still going to suck. Bad. It was going to be very bad. Uh, they're recruiting well on that side of the ball that last year's class was really great, but those guys weren't ready without the transfer portal. There is no chance Campbell. There's no Jacob Springer. There's no Otis Reese. It's that's a big deal. And it did equalize Ole Miss. It allowed Lane Kiffin to win faster because that was available. And maybe it's not sustainable. Maybe it's something you can't depend on wholly, but Lane Kiffin at Ole Miss is one for one in terms of instant impact transfer portal, guys. Sure, and now you can get a quarterback and maybe keep it rolling. I have no idea it'll work, but, man, the options are more, are more prevalent than being like, I. how do we figure out how Altmaier or Dent you know, gets us through a rebuilding year? It's kind of the difference in it all now. So, I don't know. It'll be fascinating, dude. We'll talk again soon. I'm sure after all the dust is set on this, I appreciate the time as always, and we will uh, heart you again soon. Michael Borky on Twitter, Super Talk, Sports Talk Mississippi, I should say, three to six every Monday through Friday. Got the YouTube show rolling in the morning. I appreciate it, dude. Anytime, man. You know it. That's our show. I appreciate you guys joining us as always. Thanks for uh, making it to the end here. We've got a great Friday show for you. I'm going to have Antonio Morales on. Uh, covers USC for The Athletic. Used to cover Ole Miss for the Clay and Ledger. Talk some Lincoln Riley. Going to get a hoops check in with Brack and Ray and then Friday picks with Greg. So it's going to be a pack pack into the week. I'm looking forward to it. I hope you guys are too. Thank you again for listening. Like and subscribe. Rate, review, all that good stuff that podcasters seem contractually obligated to say thanks for listening have a great wednesday we'll be back on friday